my partners and myself are proponents of right speech. R-I-G-H-T-S-P-E-E-C-H. When I say partners, I'm referring to my sex partners. I want to talk about the concept of right speech when it comes to sex. My sex partners and I, when it comes to our sex life within our sexual settings, we don't do any of these things that I'm going to list off to you. We're never telling lies to each other when it comes to sex within our sexual settings. We're never backbiting each other when it comes to sex in our sexual settings. We're never slandering each other when it comes to sex in our sexual settings. We're never engaging in hate talk to each other when it comes to sex within our sexual settings. We're never engaging in enmity type of talk when it comes to sex within our sexual settings. We're never engaging in disunity talk when it comes to sex in our sexual settings. And we're never engaging in disharmonious talk when it comes to sex in our sexual settings. We're never engaging in harsh, rude, impolite, malicious, and abusive language to each other when it comes to sex in our sexual settings. We're never engaging in idle, useless, and foolish babble and gossip towards each other when it comes to sex in our sexual settings. And we're never engaging in harmful speech to each other when it comes to sex in our sexual settings. We abstain from all of these forms of wrong consistently and all the time. We speak the truth naturally and organically when it comes to talking to each other. We use words that are friendly and benevolent towards each other when it comes to sex in our sexual settings. And remember, we speak truth to each other organically and actually comes to sex in sexual settings. We use words that are pleasant and gentle, meaningful and useful towards each other when it comes to sex in our sexual settings. We do not speak carelessly to each other when it comes to sex in our sexual settings. We use speech that is at the right times and right places towards each other when it comes to sex and our sexual settings. And if we're not able to say our useful languages towards each other, we keep noble silence because we know that we're in the wrong places and at the wrong times for our useful speech. Of course, I now want to obviously say that we use right speech outside of our sexual settings. We use right speech outside of our sex lives. Of course, we never engage in any of these kinds of wrongs that I mentioned earlier outside of our sex life and outside of our sexual settings. So how we are in sex in terms of speaking to each other and communicating and being silent when we need to for all these ways when it comes to outside of our sex and sexual settings because we're these ways 
inside of sex in a sexual setting. Talk about the second sex life value between myself and my sex partner. So we aim at promoting moral, honorable, and peaceful conduct towards each other when it comes to sex in our sexual setting. We communicate to each other the, the importance of abstaining from stealing, from dishonest feelings, from unethical and inhumane sexual intercourse. And from destroying wholesome values when it comes to our sex life in our sexual setting. And then when it comes to our sex lives and our sexual settings, we help each other to lead peaceful and honorable lives in all the right ways. So that's something I really wanted to say. Nothing when it says, of course, we have right action outside of our sex life, outside of our sexual settings. We do help others to lead peaceful and honorable lives in all the right ways, and that we do promote more honorable and peaceful conduct outside of our sex lives, outside of our sexual settings. You hear me say that a lot because I want to bring perspective on sex that people don't think about. Let's go to right life. I'm going to really put all the right life with my own words. Right livelihood comes to my sex life with my sex partners means that we abstain from making one's living through lifestyles that brings harm to each other. such as unnecessary killing, deception, unnecessary violence, barbaric exchanging and barbaric exchanging would be giving giving each other trauma complexes Unnecessary abuse, unnecessary victimization, a lack of self-control, lack of self-discipline, and anyone and anything that endangers 
us. We're not dangerous to each other nor to ourselves. So the so those are the things that we abstain from doing with each other when it comes to each other's sex lives in our sexual sexual settings. In our sex life and our within our sexual settings, we are honorable, blameless, and innocent of harm to each other and to ourselves. When it comes to our sex life, we are promoting a happy, a harmonious life. That not only is protective of each other and ourselves, but also of, uh, but also of society. There's no, uh, there's no unjust anything and no kind of evil about our sex life in our sexual settings. My set, my partners, and and of course we are of right livelihood outside of our sex lives outside of our sexual settings too. My sex partners and myself, we have mental discipline. Again, we have mental discipline, myself and my partners, in terms of our sex lives and our sexual settings. I'm going to explain more of our mental discipline of what I'm talking about. Myself and my partners, my sex partners, we have right effort when it comes to set our sex life and our sexual settings mean that we have energetic we have energetic will to prevent evil or wholesome states of mind from arising whenever we're having relations and wherever we have sex. And whenever we have our relations and wherever we have sex, we keep out evil and wholesome states that have already arisen within people but they do not infiltrate us when it comes to our sex and our sexual settings and also We, we produced to cause to arise good and wholesome states of mind, not yet risen in so many people, but very much arisen within ourselves, myself, my partners, our sex and our sexual settings. And we develop and bring to perfection the good and wholesome states of mind already present in each other and others when it comes to our sex and our sexual settings. And yes, we engage in right effort outside of our sex life and outside of our sexual settings. My partners and I have right mindfulness when it comes to sex and our sexual settings. So that means that when it comes to our sex and our sexual when it comes to our sex life and our sexual settings, my sex partners and myself are diligently aware, mindful and attentive with regard to the activities of our bodies, our sensations and our feelings, our activities of our minds, our, our ideas, our thoughts, our, concept our conceptions and our things. When it comes to my sex life with my sex partners within our sexual settings, we are clearly aware of all forms of our feelings and our sensations, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, of how 
they disappear and appear within ourselves together. Um, concerning the activities of our minds comes to our sex life in our sexual setting. We are aware whether our minds is at peace or struggling to be at peace. We are aware that our minds are not diluted, not polluted, not distracted. There's no hatred within our sex lives and our sexual settings, and we're very much concentrated on each other on percent. And if we're struggling to be at peace, we don't have sex at that moment. Because sex is not going to make it any better. And compassionate love is each other is in our minds when it comes to sex and a sexual sense. And we are aware of all movements of our minds, how they arise and disappear, how they stay, and how they go. Our, my sex life and my partner within our sex and sexual settings as regards to our ideas, our thoughts, our conceptions, and our things. We know their natures, how they appear, disappear, how they are developed, how they are suppressed, destroyed, and so on. Basically, in a nutshell, myself and my partner we are people of constant maturity when it comes to growing and developing as lovers and sex partners towards each other. Myself and my partners, we are of right thoughts and right understandings when it comes to our sex lives within our sexual settings with each other. Meaning that we have, we denote to each other our thoughts of selfless renunciation selfless detachment, thoughts of compassionate love and thoughts of peaceful nonviolence. Because we don't have thoughts of selfish desire. We don't have thoughts of ill will. We don't have thoughts of hatred. We don't have thoughts of our sex life in our sexual settings. And we are we are overflowing with wisdom in all spheres of our lives, together whether individual, social, political, and so on and so forth. Because we are of true wisdom, being endowed with noble these noble qualities. We group we're grouped on the side of wisdom. All when it comes to our sex life within our sexual settings. So right thoughts are part of our sex life and our sexual settings. And we're also a part of intellectual perfection, moral excellence, and inner beauty when it comes to our sex life and our sexual settings. We are self-disciplined in body, word, 
time, self-development, and self. Fine-tuning when it comes to our sex life and our sexual settings. Right understanding is part of our sex life and our sexual understandings too because we're understanding of our things as they are and we explain our things as they really are. And some of our things we see in their true natures without always naming them, without always labeling them. We're free from all impurities. We're fully developed through meditation. We have an accumulated memory. We have an intellectual grasping of the subject according to certain given data. Our understanding is knowledge and our highest wisdom and understanding is ultimate reality. All of these things have within our sex life and our sexual sex. And my partners and I, we have right concentration comes to our sex life and our sexual setting. We have ethical, passionate desires. We have wholesome thoughts, therefore we block out unwholesome thoughts. We don't allow ill will, languor, worry, restlessness, a skeptical doubt, and coveting to be a part of our sex lives in a sexual setting. So all those things are discarded from sex lives in our sexual settings. And if we do have skeptical doubt, it's more about skeptical doubt towards the sexual hurts, habits, and groups that we were taught, and we are actively healing from sexual hurts, sexual habits, and sexual hangups that are and were traumatic for us. Sometimes all these things come to our sex life and our sexual settings, so we have. Feelings of joy and happiness are maintained along with certain uh, mental activities such as deep breathing and positive affirmations all helpful towards our sex life and our sexual settings. We have mindful equanimity, disposition of happiness, active sensations, more feelings of joy, uh, blocking out sorrow, unhappiness, all unhealthy suppression, being blocked, but Again, we have all sorrows and happiness and all suppression that are blocked. But again, we have this position of happiness, mindful equanimity, more feelings of joy. We have active sensation, more joy and happiness, 
more mind developing all intellectual activities such as making wise observations and were multi-pointers, not one-pointers. These are all the things that we are all about with each other, sex partners. I mean, in closing, when it comes to my sex life values, here are the sex life values in our sexual settings that we do to each other. There's right understanding, right? There's right understandings, right thoughts, right speech, right actions, right livelihood, right efforts, right mindfulness, and right concentration, all in our sex lives and our sexual settings. And we engage in right understandings, right thoughts, right speech, Right actions, right livelihood, right efforts, right livelihood, right concentrations outside of our sex lives and our sexual settings. So we apply the Noble Eightfold Path from Buddhism and uh, to our sex lives and our sexual settings. That's what we do. So there's wisdom in our sex lives and our sex within our sexual settings because we constitute wisdom to. So, we allow ourselves to just be freely saying staying clean, not squeaky clean, but just staying clean, meaning we don't live lives of recklessness in any, and unlawfulness in any kind of way. We choose each other. And I want to say that when it comes to my adult entertainment life that I'll have in the future, when it comes to myself and my co-stars, foreign co-stars, we have right understandings, right thoughts, right speech, right actions, right livelihood, right efforts, right mindfulness, right concentrations when it comes to each other. When it comes to my partners that are not in the world of porn offspring, we have right understandings, right thoughts, right speech, right actions, right livelihood, right efforts, right mindfulness, and right concentrations when it comes to each other. Wow. Moral conduct, discipline, and wisdom is beautiful when it comes to my on-screen sex life and my off-screen sex life. Within our on-screen sexual settings and our off-screen sexual settings. So, that shows you my sex life. One more comment on religion, I'm gonna take my one month break talking about religion and sex, okay? I noticed that how come the concubines even though some of them are listed, how come the concubines never were Bible writers? How come most of the women that are said to exist in the Bible, how come most of them were not Bible writers, whether they were wives or concubines or moms? Not all of them had written, not all of them had written accounts of them in the Bible, which I find to be problematic. 
half of their stories are not told, but the male story about their perspective are not told. I think that is just awful and dreadful to me. Why? I don't understand the sex shaming, the slut shaming, the kink shaming. And even the prude shaming that I see in the Bible. I don't understand the rape culture that I see in the Bible. I don't understand the horophobia that I see in the Bible either. There's just things that in the Bible that I go how is that the will of God by the way right understandings right thoughts right speech right action right livelihood right efforts right methods and right concentration all at our all of the noble eightfold path that we apply when it comes to our screen lives sexually and our off screen lives sexually within our outside within our sexual settings on screen and off screen so we have these values everywhere we go whether we're on screen or off screen whether I have sex in a sexual sense or not having sex in a sexual sense. Okay, now let me get back to the Bible. I do feel that as I have kept reading the Bible, For example, how come there are terminologies and nouns and verbs that are hard to decipher when it comes to biblical scholarship and secular scholarship? How come there's ambiguity to language in the Bible? How come it is historical to misinterpret terms, misimportant nuances, mistranslate, mistransliterate? Um, misinterpret euphemisms to misinterpret slang And to misinterpret meanings and contexts. Those are other reasons why I'm not a religious person. And the whole usage of sexually violent metaphors attribute more to my disillusionment with religion. I don't like the sexual violence and marriage metaphors 
either that I've seen any other thing. I'm very much free in my soul about how I interpret religion. Taking my time because I love to choose my words carefully. So I thought about how my journey in religion and I dare say if there's an actual God that God totally different than the God of religious texts and pious canons and faith-based anthologies. I'm not ruling out. I'm not ruling out the existence of any deity. I'm not ruling out the existence of any Christ figure. The reason why I said I'm not ruling out because there could be evidence one day that can give us the full truth or we'll just never know. What up? All truths are embraced by me with their heart truth. I interpret all religious texts with allegories and analogies. So that is how I feel. Am I a am I a person who does not go to any house of worship every week? That would be correct, I'm not that type of person. Would I be the type of person that would serve in ministry every week? I'm not that type of person either. So that's what makes me a secularist. I do not live my life feeling compelled to live by the bitterism of any kind or evangelicalism of any kind either. so again that's more of my secularism being exposed to you for me
I thought about this very important thing. This sums up my view of Jesus of history. This is NBCnews.com, July 19, by Morning Joe Stad. An excerpt from Reza Aslan's Sabbath introduction. It is a miracle that we know anything at all about the man called Jesus of Nazareth. The itinerant preacher wandering from village to village, clamoring about the end of the world, a band of ragged followers trailing behind, was a was a common sight in Jesus' time, so common in fact that it had become kind of a caricature among the Roman elite. In a farcical passage about just such a figure, the Greek philosopher Celsus imagines a Jewish holy man roaming the Galilean countryside, shouting to no one in particular, I am God, or the servant of God, or a divine spirit, but I am coming, for the world is already in the throes of destruction, and you will soon see me coming with the power of heaven. The first century was an era of apocalyptic expectation among the Jews of Palestine. Roman designation for the vast tract of land encompassing modern day Israel slash Palestine as well as large parts of Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. Countless prophets, preachers, and messiahs tramped through the Holy Land delivering messages of God's imminent judgment. Many of these so-called quote-unquote false messiahs we know by name. If he are even mentioned in the New Testament, the prophet through it just according to the book of Acts had 400 disciples before Rome captured him and cut off his head. A mysterious charismatic figure known only as the Egyptian raised an army of followers in the desert, nearly all of whom were massacred by Roman troops in 4 BCE, the year in which most scholars believe Jesus of Nazareth was born. A poor shepherd named Ath. Athrongus put a diadem on his head and crowned himself king of the Jews. He and his followers were brutally cut down by a legion of soldiers. Another messianic aspirant, called simply the Samaritan, was crucified by Pontius Pilate, even though he raised no army and in no way challenged Rome. The indication that the authorities, sensing the apocalyptic fever in the air, had become extremely sensitive to any hint of sedition. There was Hezekiah the bandit chief, Simon of Perea, Judas the Galilean, his grandson Menahem, Simon son of Goria, and Simon son of Kashba, all of whom declared messianic ambitions, all of whom were executed by Rome for doing so. Add to this list the Essene sect, S-E-C-T, some of whose members lived in seclusion atop the dry plateau of Qumran on the northwestern shore of the Dead Sea, the first century Jewish revolutionary party known as the Zealots, who helped launch a bloody war against Rome, and a fearsome band of assassins whom the Romans dubbed the Sicarii, the Dagger Men, and the picture that emerged in the first century Palestine is of an era awash in messianic energy. It is difficult to place Jesus of Nazareth squarely within any of the known religio-political movements of his time. He was a man of profound contradictions. One day preaching a message of racial exclusion, I was sent solely to the lost sheep of Israel. Matthew chapter 5 verse 24, the next of benevolent universalism, go and make disciples of all nations. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, sometimes calling for unconditional peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, sometimes promoting violence and conflict. If you do not have a sword, go sell your cloak and buy one. Luke chapter 22, verse 36. The problem with pinning down the historical Jesus that outside of the New Testament, there is almost no trace of the man who would so permanently alter the course of human history. The earliest and most reliable non-biblical reference to Jesus comes from the first century Jewish historian Flavius Josephus died 100 CE. Dated 100 CE. Okay, that's the date. In a brief throwaway passage in Antiquities, 
Josephus writes of a fiendish Jewish high priest named Ananus, who after the death of the Roman governor Festus unlawfully condemned a certain James, the brother of Jesus, the one they call Messiah, to stoning for transgression of the law. The passage moves on to relate what happened to Ananus after the new governor Albinus finally arrived in Jerusalem. Fleeting and dismissive as the solution may be, the phrase, the one they call Messiah, is clearly meant to express derision. It nevertheless contains an enormous significance for those searching for any sign of the historical Jesus. In a society without surnames, a common name like James required a specific appellation, a place of birth or a father's name to distinguish it from all the other men named James roaming around Palestine, hence Jesus of Nazareth. In this case, James's appellative was provided by his paternal connection to someone with whom Josephus assumes his audience would be familiar. The passage proves not only that Jesus, the one they call Messiah, probably existed, but, but that by the year 94 CE, when the Antiquities was written, he was widely recognized as the founder of a new and enduring movement. It is that movement, not its founder, that receives the attention of second century historians like Tacitus, oh, the date 118, and Pliny the Younger, date 113, both of whom mention Jesus of Nazareth but reveal little about him, save for his arrest and execution. An important historical note, as we shall see, but one that sheds little light on the details of Jesus' life. We are therefore left with whatever information can be gleaned from the New Testament. The first written testimony we have about Jesus of Nazareth comes from the epistles of Paul. Those followed Jesus who died sometime around 66 CE. Paul's first epistle, 1 Thessalonians, can be dated between 48 and 50 CE, some two decades after Jesus' death. The trouble with Paul, however, is that he displays an extraordinary lack of interest in historical Jesus. Only three scenes from Jesus' life are ever mentioned in his epistles. The Last Supper, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23-26. The Crucifixion, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. And most crucially for Paul, the resurrection, without which he claims our preaching is empty and your faith is in vain, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. Paul may be an excellent source for those interested in the early formation of Christianity. Please support God for uncovering the historical Jesus. That leaves us with the Gospels, which present their own set of problems. First of all, one must recognize that with the possible exception of the Gospel of Luke, none of the Gospels we have were written by the person after whom they are named. That is true of most of the books in the New Testament. Such so-called pseudo-pipographical books, such so-called pseudepigraphical works or works attributed to, but not written by a specific author, were extremely common in the ancient world and should by no means be thought of as forgeries. Naming a book after a person is a standard way of reflecting that person's beliefs or representing their school of thought. Regardless, the Gospels are not, nor were they ever meant to be, a historical documentation of Jesus' life. These are not eyewitness accounts of Jesus' words and deeds. They are testimonies of faith composed by communities of faith written many years after the events they describe. Simply put, the Gospel tells us about Jesus the Christ, not Jesus the man. The most widely accepted theory of the formation of the Gospels, the two source theory, holds that Mark's account is written first after 70 CE. Some four decades after Jesus' death, Mark had at his disposal a collection of oral and perhaps a handful of written traditions that had been passed around by Jesus' early follow by Jesus' earliest followers for years. By adding chronological narrative to this jumble of traditions. Mark created a wholly new literary genre called gospel, Greek for good news. Yet Mark's gospel is a short and somewhat unsatisfying one for many Christians. There's no empathy narrative. Jesus simply arrives one day on the banks of the Jordan River 
to be baptized by John the Baptist, there are no resurrection appearances. Jesus is crucified, his body is placed in a tomb. A few days later, the tomb is empty. Even the earliest Christians were left wanting by Mark's brusque account of Jesus' life and ministry, and so left to Mark's successors, Matthew and Luke, to prove upon the original text. Two decades after Mark, between 90 and 100 CE, the authors of Matthew and Luke, working independently of each other with Mark's manuscript as a template, updated the gospel story by adding their own unique traditions, including two different and conflicting mythical narratives, as well as a series of elaborate resurrection stories to satisfy their Christian readers. Matthew and Luke also relied on what must have been an early fairly well-stripped request for Jesus' sins that scholars have termed key. German for quell or source, although we no longer have any physical copies of this document, we can infer its contents by compiling those verses that Matthew and Luke share in common, that, but that do not appear in Mark. Together, these three Gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, became known as the Synoptics, Greek for viewed together, because they more or less present a common narrative and chronology about the life and ministry of Jesus. One that is written at odds with the fourth gospel, John, which was likely written soon after the close of the first century between 101 and 20 CE. These then are the can canonized gospels. They are not the only gospels, and that has access to an entire library of non-canonical scriptures written mostly in the second and third centuries that provides a vastly different perspective in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. These include the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the Secret Book of John, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, and a host of other so-called Gnostic writings discovered in Upper Egypt near the town of Nash, Nag Hammadi, Nag Hammadi, in 1945. Though they were left out of what would ultimately become the New Testament, these books are significant that they demonstrate the dramatic divergence of opinion that existed over who Jesus was and what Jesus meant, even among those who walked with him, who shared his bread and ate with him, who heard his words and prayed with him. And then there are only two hard historical facts about Jesus Nazareth upon which we can confidently rely. The first is that Jesus was a Jew who led a popular Jewish movement in Palestine at the beginning of the first century. The second is that Rome crucified him for doing so. This is the beginning of first century CE when he was leading that popular Jewish movement in Palestine. By themselves, these two facts cannot provide a complete portrait of the life of the man who lived 2,000 years ago. But when combined with all, we know about the tumultuous era in which Jesus lived, and thanks to the Romans, we know a great deal. These two facts help paint a picture of Jesus Nazareth that may be more historically accurate than the one painted by the Gospels. Indeed, the Jesus that emerges from this historical exercise a zealous revolutionary swept up as all Jews of the era were in the religious and political turmoil of first century Palestine bears little resemblance to the image of a gentle shepherd cultivated by the early Christian community. Consider this, crucifixion was a punishment that Rome reserved almost exclusively for the crime of sedition. The plaque the Romans placed above Jesus' head as he writhed in pain, the king of the Jews was called a Titleist, and despite common perception, was not meant to be sarcastic. Every criminal who hung on a cross received a plaque declaring the specific crime for which he was being executed. Jesus' crime in the eyes of Rome was striving for kingly rule. Example, treason. The same crime for which nearly every other messianic aspirant of the time was killed. Nor did Jesus die alone. The Gospels claim that on either side of Jesus hung men who in Greek are called leste. A word often rendered into English as thieves, but actually meant bandits. It was the most common Roman designation for an, designation for an, in, for an insurrectionist or rebel. Three rebels on a hill covered in crosses, each cross bearing the racked and bloody body of a man who dared defy the will of Rome. That image alone should cast doubt upon the Gospels' portrayal of Jesus as a man of unconditional peace, almost wholly insulated from the political upheavals of his time. When I say holy, in this case, it means W-H-O-L-L-Y. The notion that the leader of a popular messianic movement calling for the imposition of the quote-unquote kingdom of God, a term that would have been understood by Jew and Gentile like as implying revolt against Rome, 
could have remained uninvolved in the revolutionary fervor that had gripped nearly every Jew in Judea is simply ridiculous. Why would the gospel writers go to such lengths to temper the revolutionary nature of Jesus' message and movement? To answer this question, we first recognize that almost every gospel story written about the life and mission of Jesus Nazareth was composed after the Jewish rebellion against Rome in 66 CE. In that year, a band of Jewish rebels spurred by their zeal for God roused their fellow Jews in revolt. Miraculously, the rebels managed to liberate the Holy Land from the Roman occupation. For four glorious years, the city of God was once again under Jewish control. Then in 70 CE, the Romans returned after a brief siege of Jerusalem. The soldiers breached the city walls and unleashed an orgy of violence upon its residents. They butchered everyone in their path, heaping corpse on the Temple Mount. A river of blood flowed down the cobblestone streets. When the massacre was complete, the soldiers set fire to the Temple of God. The fire spread beyond the Temple Mount, engulfing Jerusalem's meadows. The farms, olive trees, everything burned. So complete was the devastation wrought upon the holy city that Josephus writes, there was nothing left to prove Jerusalem had ever been inhabited. Tens of thousands of Jews were slaughtered. The rest were marched out of the city in chains. The spiritual trauma faced by the Jews in the wake of that catastrophic event is hard to imagine. Jesus out from the land promised them by God forced to live as outcasts among the pagans of the Roman Empire. The rabbis of the second century gradually and deliberately divorced Judaism for the radical messianic nationalism that had launched the ill-fated war with Rome. Torah replaced the temple in the center of Jewish life and rabbinic Judaism emerged. The Christians too felt the need to distance themselves from the revolutionary cell that had that had led to the sacking of Jerusalem. Not only because it allowed the early church to war off the wrath of the deeply vengeful Rome, but also because of the Jewish religion having become pariah, the Romans had become the primary target of the church's evangelism. Thus began the long process of transforming Jesus from a revolutionary Jewish nationalist to a peaceful spiritual leader with no interest in early earthly matter. That was a Jesus the Romans could accept, and in fact did accept three centuries later with the Roman Emperor Flavius Theodosius dated 395, making the itinerant Jewish preachers movement the official religion of the state and what we now recognize as Orthodox Christianity was born. The book's an attempt to reclaim as much as possible Jesus of history, the Jesus before Christianity. The politically conscious Jewish revolutionary who 2000 years ago walked across the Galilean countryside gathering followers for a messianic movement with the goal of establishing the kingdom of God, but his mission failed when, after a provocative entry to Jerusalem in a brazen attack on the temple, he is arrested and executed by Rome for the crime of sedition. It's also about how, in the aftermath of Jesus' failure to establish God's reign on earth, his followers reinterpret not only Jesus' mission and identity, but also the very nature and the definition of the Jewish Messiah. There are those who consider such an endeavor to be a waste of time, believing that Jesus' history to be irrevocably lost and incapable of recovery. Long gone are the heady days of the quest for the historical Jesus in quotations when scholars constantly proclaim that modern scientific tools and historical research allow us to uncover Jesus' true identity. For no Jesus no longer matters, these scholars argue. We should focus instead on the only Jesus that is susceptible to us. Jesus the Christ. Granted, writing a biography of Jesus of Nazareth is not like writing a biography of Napoleon Bonaparte. The task is somewhat akin to putting together a massive puzzle with only a few of the pieces in hand. One has no choice but to fill in the rest of the puzzle based on the best, most educated guess of what the completed image should look like. The great Christian theologian Rudolf Bultmann liked to say that the quest for the historical Jesus is ultimately an internal quest. Scholars tend to see the Jesus they want to see. Too often they see themselves their own reflection image of Jesus they have constructed. And yet that best, most educated guess may be enough to, at the very least, question our most basic assumptions about Jesus of Nazareth. If we expose the claims of the Gospels to the heat of historical analysis, we could purge the scriptures of their literary and theological forces and forge a far more 
accurate picture of Jesus of history. Indeed, if we commit to placing Jesus firmly within the social, religious, and political context of the era in which he lived, an era marked by the slow burn of revolt against Rome that forever transformed the faith and practice of Judaism, then in some ways, his biography writes itself. The Jesus that is uncovered in the process may not be the Jesus we expect. He certainly will not be the Jesus that most modern Christians will recognize, but in he is the only Jesus that we possess by historical means. Everything else is a matter of faith. I would say that when the Romans crucified Jesus, I think it was sarcastic just for him. And the when it says King of the Jews, because he was challenging Rome economically, politically, uh, and socially and governmentally. So I think it was sarcastic, at least just for him. And they put the King of the Jews sign above him. And I do think that a lot of scholars are saying that the book of Revelations is a forgery. So there could be more than one Bible book that is potentially forgeries, according to academic scholarship. Uh, academic scholars and and the fact that it is possible and I must admit this because I would have had a very hard very hard excruciating time and ending this back then. It's possible that there's either a historical Jesus or the Christ myth theory is true. It is possible that Jesus actually existed or that Jesus himself was a myth based upon the very little details of Jesus historically, either or, one is the truth. I don't know which one, honestly. I would like to think he existed, but based upon the little information we have. My inquiring mind wants to know what is the truth on that? Is it possible that a historical Jesus did live in that era in that time period? It's possible, but was he the Christ? That's an unfilled blank for me. My inquiring mind wants to know. When I say unfilled blank, it means the concept is so above my comprehension that it's that big of a complexity. It's not just simply yes or no because there's so many layers attached to the concept of quote unquote Christ. And now when the other author, the author just said Jesus Christ, he's talking about how modern Christians see him. How people even call him Christ because that's how widespread the early church talked about him. And now most people will say Jesus Christ, even if they don't believe in him, they'll say Jesus Christ if they're like amazed at something or disappointed in something or even having sex. So just because you say Jesus and Christ, it doesn't mean actually be Jesus Christ. Some people are that way. Um, when I say Christ and I say unfilled blank, the, the religious definitions of Christ 
never worked for me because they're all about the exclusion of billions of people of inner beauty, many who are not Christians. And the religious definition of deities have worked for me because it's all about divine genocidal wrathfulness, which completely contradicts the human rights movement that I'm a part of. I don't mind a human rights honoring deity. I do not mind a human rights honoring Christ figure. I do mind human rights abusing deities. And I do mind human rights abusing Christ figures. Again, another way of saying what I just said the first time, human rights honoring deities and human rights honoring Christ figures are cool with me. But human rights abusing deities and human rights abusing Christ figures are never cool with me. So... Salvation, eternal life, new last Adam. I don't like the religious definitions of those terms. I don't like the religious definitions of any term. I don't like the religious definitions of religious terms. And I don't like the religious definitions of secular terms because they're all about social club, country club elitism. And that Christians are the only socially acceptable people ever, which I go, I have immeasurable countless problems with that. So I just want to say I'm officially taking my break from talk about sex and religion for one whole month, May 24th, I'll talk about religion and sex again, and I will not repeat myself anymore after this. I won't repeat the whole one month thing this is really it this time and I'm not saying it to think new things talk wrestling so I can do more episodes on this nope this is it this is the final curtain call I'm done over and out ain't no doubt I'm done and I damn sure enough done had my fun